0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the
1: Radio Player app. So this Manulife Bank of Canada survey caught our attention this morning because it talked about our debt levels here in Canada, which we know are too high. Essentially, we are carrying too much debt. So the question is, are we going to be able to pay off that debt in our lifetimes? And what are our expectations of that? Well, the survey found that 40% of Canadians who are in debt don't expect to escape it in their lifetimes, actually. So that's what we're asking you for our hot question of the day. Do you expect to clear your debt before you die? Do you go, yeah, that's manageable. I'm going to do it. Or do you go, no, that is not going to happen? Let us know what it's like for you when it comes to your personal finances on that front. You can vote in our hot question of the day. You'll find it at CKNW or at SimiSara980. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com, or check out our buzz line, 604-331-2899, and leave us a message. But the question is, the debt that you have right now, credit card, line of credit, whatever it may be, do you expect to clear all that before you die, maybe even before you retire? Or do you think, nope, not going to happen in my lifetime? Let us know. Well, we tend to think of the beluga whales up in the Arctic as being, you know, pretty remote, must be pristine up there. Well, not so much. We're talking today about this pioneering study of seven beluga whales up in the remote Arctic waters of Canada that found microplastics inside every single whale. How is that possible? Well, researchers from Vancouver-based OceanWise worked with hunters from Tuktoyaktuk in the Northwest Territories to collect samples from whales that had been harvested between 2017 and 2018. And what they found was that no matter how isolated it seems up there, somehow plastic pollution is still making its way to those whales. question now is why? We wanted to learn more about this. So we were joined earlier by lead author of this study, Rhiannon Moore, who said she wasn't expecting what they found. Well, Rhiannon, thanks so much for joining us today. First off, how did you do this? How did you do this study?
2: That's a great first question. It's <laughs> it's definitely a lot to try to investigate these tiny pieces of plastic in such a massive yeah. animal. Um, so we, we collaborated with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and this community uh, far, far up north called Tuktoyaktuk. So that's about 300 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. Wow. Um, and every year they actually harvest belugas for food because obviously it takes a lot of um, emissions and packaging to try to get food to northern communities. So they've been relying on these animals for, for many, many years. Um, and so it's such a great opportunity to be able to sample those those individuals that are being harvested. So They've actually been um, monitored for many different types of pollutants over the years. Um, But for the past two years, we set out to look to see if there were plastics in, in the stomachs of belugas and in the intestines of belugas. So what's remarkable, I guess, about this is that you
1: would think that if these belugas spend most of their time that far north, how much pollution could there possibly be?
2: Exactly. Yeah. And... This is one thing that we're really learning about plastic pollution is that it gets absolutely everywhere. It's, we often use the term ubiquitous. So it just kind of infiltrates every ecosystem and and every species that we kind of investigate. And they do, yeah, they're, they're a far north top predator. And on one hand, I wasn't, Surprised just because we do find these tiny particles in in almost everything. But then on the other hand, I was surprised and I was, you know, a little bit saddened to think that, that these animals living in these perceived pristine areas are ingesting these pieces of plastic that came from likely a variety of things. So how much plastic are we talking about and how
1: microscopic are we talking about?
2: So, we're talking about pretty microscopic. So, the way that we classify microplastics, it's about five millimeters in size or less. So, if you imagine like a grain of rice or smaller. Oh, okay. So, um, I didn't find anything that I could actually see with my eyes. <laughs> I I had to filter and then look at stuff under the microscope. So, on average, based on some subsamples that we had um, as well as flushing out the entire stomach of each individual, we found on average about 100 particles per whale. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, When you consider where they are and what's going on. Yeah, but then when you think of the size of an actual whale's digestive system, like its intestines are seven times the length of its body. And then uh, a whale actually has – it's a lot like a cow. So it has four compartments of its stomach. Um, So that's a lot of travel time for plastics to kind of stick around. Um, But we don't think – or it's kind of unknown whether, whether it really affects the health of belugas. But what does that tell us, though, about how far and wide this plastic pollution is traveling? Yeah, it definitely tells us a lot. It tells us that plastic... Well, first of all, it's lightweight and it's durable. So because it's lightweight, it's able to travel these vast distances around the ocean. There's a lot of plastic in the ocean. Um, It's estimated that 8 million metric tons enters the ocean every year, and that – because it's plastic, it doesn't biodegrade. It just breaks apart. So those eventually become microplastics, and that has to go somewhere. So it goes, it floats on the surface of the water. It stays suspended in the ocean. It goes to the deep sea, and it gets taken up by many, many different organisms.
1: We've often heard about that plastic kind of stuff that's floating around in the Pacific Ocean, right? Mm-hmm. That giant garbage dump in the middle. And that's very far away from what we're talking about here. So if that's affecting beluga whales way up north, far away from that, what is the amount of plastic in our oceans doing to mammals that are much closer to that plastic waste dump?
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's actually, so that area that you're talking about um, is referred to the North Pacific Garbage Chire or the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And that's just an area of um, many different ocean currents coming together and kind of concentrating plastic. But it's nothing you can see from space or anything like that. It's actually these tiny, tiny particles that are breaking apart into smaller pieces. Yeah. But it does, you know, finding particles way up in, in these remote um, areas does make us wonder what whales closer to home, like us in Vancouver, are, are kind of ingesting. So do we know anything about how this
1: potentially impacts a whale's health? No, we don't. That's the a big question. The, then, yeah. yeah,
2: that's the big question, and, and the simple answer is right now we don't. Um, microplastic research is relatively new, and it's quite a challenging field because you are kind of investigating this mini-crime scene within each – Each It's like an autopsy every single time, but you have to have the animal
1: available to you first.
2: Yes, you need the animal available to you, and you also need the technology available to be able to actually identify these particles as actually plastic because a lot of things can look like plastic, but they actually aren't. Yeah, like um, little exoskeletons of animals, minerals, rocks, um, pieces of—
1: yeah. Did you ever see yourself doing this kind of work? No.
2: <laughs> I when I was elbow deep in a whale stomach, I was like, "Huh. How did I end up here?" <laughs> you must have had a moment like that. Well, I definitely I've always been really into the environment and I and I started to go towards, you know, the science path and the biology path, but it wasn't until I started to work for Parks Canada actually on the west coast of Vancouver Island when I when I really got interested in the plastic problem because they actually receive a lot of marine debris on, on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And I was sitting on the beach one day. <laughs> who gets to do that? on the, the, Having my I lunch. I get paid to, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just sitting on my lunch on the beach, and I looked down, and there's all these particles of, you know, whites and blues and things like that. And I was like, oh, these are not shells. These are pieces of plastic, and they they were everywhere. Really? Yeah, and this was about maybe six years ago before the whole, you know— Awareness came. Yeah, the awareness came, and so I started to really ask questions and and became, like, totally obsessed with the issue, and I thought the best way to— Understand this is to, you know, go through grad school and do this research to, to learn more about it.
1: But obviously, this has raised more questions too, right? So, like, where do you go now? What questions did this raise for you that you now want to look into?
2: Yeah, it does, it does answer some questions, but I feel like it does raise more questions, (laughs) which I guess is the basis of science, but, um, What we're doing now is we're investigating fish that beluga eat. So we're trying to map out where these microplastics might be coming from because belugas, unlike gray whales or humpback whales that are filter feeders, so they gulp these huge amounts of water and then filter things through, they have teeth. So they purposely select their prey with their teeth. And so we don't think that they're selecting large pieces of plastic and breaking it apart into smaller pieces, we think that they are getting the plastics through their prey. So the fish that they are eating have eaten plastic. Do we know what kind of fish beluga whales eat? Yeah, we have a decent idea um, from from past research. Um, so we know that they eat Arctic cod, which is a keystone species in the Arctic. So we're looking at Arctic cod. Um, but beluga are very opportunistic. So they eat Absolutely everything. So it's hard to sample everything that they eat, but we're looking at uh, five different species right now that they're eating. So what's your next study then? Our next study is going to. We're working on a, a research paper right now to to look at the um, the amount of microplastics in these these fish and see if they. Um, do if they are a significant source of, of microplastics for beluga.
1: Well, we'll have to have you back on then when you finish that one, too. Yeah. Rhiannon, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, of course. and Moore, a researcher at Oceanwise and the lead author of this study, with some really, I mean, what, kind of, how, what a fascinating job that is. You know what I mean? Like, she actually does autopsies essentially on beluga whales to count for plastics.
3: Welcome to the Cybertruck Unveil. Yeah!
1: It's a very enthusiastic crowd for Elon Musk last night. Everybody was watching. People were watching online, all over the world, waiting to see Tesla unveil their cyber truck. Didn't exactly go as planned, but you know what? Some people don't care about that. Some people, I'm sure, are still lining up to buy this thing. We're going to talk now with our contributor, Claire Allen, about that. Claire, are you lining up to buy this thing?
0: I love Tesla, but I was You have one. I have a Tesla. Yeah, I have a Model 3. And I love it. It is the greatest car I've ever owned, and it it's amazing technology. But uh, this one no, l- left little to be desired for me. Really? Yeah. So, Is it the shape? What is it that you didn't like? Well, I'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> because so last night, I have a lot of Tesla fans. My fiance is a huge Tesla fan. All his fr- friends are big fans. They all tuned in for this live stream event last really? night. Eight o'clock, phone, we were at an event last night. Phone was going so we could see the Cybertruck. And anyways, so it was unveiled last night. So Tesla has made electric passenger cars pretty mainstream, right? Yes, Yes, and very desirable. They've got the Model S, the Model 3, and the Model X crossover. And now it's turning to one of the most important markets out right now, the pickup truck. Yes. And so at this very bizarre (laughs) event last night in Los Angeles, Elon Musk debuted the Tesla Cybertruck, the first truck from the Tesla motor brand. So let's get into what it looks like looks, you said it looks like a DeLorean. I think it looks like something on a Mad Max. Oh, I could see
1: the Mad Max thing because it's all sharp angles Very and sh- edges,
0: unlike anything on the How market. Is that, right? I don't know what
1: dynamic. Because that used to be what cars look like.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It. I'm not a big fan, but they say that this Cybertruck is built with an exterior shell made for ultimate durability and passenger protection. Mm-hmm. Starting with a nearly impenetrable exoskeleton made from a superior strength and endurance uh, stainless steel. They call it the Ultra Hard 30X. Cold rolled, whatever that means. Stainless steel. <laughs> it's actually the manufacturing process, but oh, okay. I have no idea. But I just sounded so interesting. I they just, and above I think they my just head. made it sound high tech. It's stainless Coal steel, cold rolled stainless steel. But the,
1: never the, heard again. It, the DeLorean was stainless steel. That was the whole thing about making the DeLorean so cool. Because they
0: wanted ultimate passenger protection for the DeLorean. I, I, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It was good for time travel. So they also said that the Tesla would have armored glass. Now I do love this. part. This didn't go very well. So Elon said that you could actually fire a. Um, a 9 millimeter handgun at the glass and you would be protected. So he got his head designer to throw a metal ball at the window to show the strength of the window and uh, the demo didn't really go as planned.
3: Franz, could you try to break this glass, please? Yes. Yes.
4: Yeah. <laughs> sure? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well...
3: Maybe that was a little too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Should we try one? <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. It didn't go through. Let's so that's a, that a plus side.
1: Let's try the right
3: one. Try that one, really? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Oh, man. It didn't go
4: through.
1: <laughs> i just, you know, it
0: why didn't they test that before they sent it out there? That's my question because I wasn't really paying attention to the unveiling it's and then I looked Claire. oh no I know I looked over and I was like what is this junky car doing on the stage with the shattered glass and I was like this is a joke right and my fiance was like this is the Cybertruck he was so excited but uh, yeah that didn't go as planned and of course he's being sort of Made fun of on the internet today because of this issue. He says that you know they'll they'll fix it. They'll try to make it better, hopefully. But listen to some of these uh, performance claims, Simi. Okay. So you got zero to sixty miles an hour in two point nine seconds and a ten point eight second quarter mile time. Um, Musk claims that they will have um, three options of uh, for of range: five hundred miles. Two two hundred fifty plus and three hundred plus mile versions will also be offered. Five hundred miles of range—that's amazing. Yeah, and it will also be also it'll be capable of uh, two hundred fifty kilowatt fast charging too. Wow. Yeah, and um, so there will be an entry level rear drive Cybertruck along with two and three motor wheel all drive models. Here's the crazy part that got the biggest reaction last night was the price. Starting price U.S. dollars, of course, thirty nine thousand nine hundred. No way. And rises to sixty nine nine hundred for the trimotor version.
1: Like a tricked out truck these days, F one fifty or Dodge Ram, whatever it is, you're talking like fifty sixty thousand dollars, right? Seventy. I've seen like a, a truck with like all the bells and whistles yeah. is like seventy yeah. seventy five thousand dollars.
0: Yeah. So people were going nuts when they saw this when he unveiled the price. This was kind of like the last part that he unveiled. Can he
1: deliver this
0: though? I mean, that's yet or, to be seen, right? So they started accepting. um uh, sort of like if you're interested, you can put a down payment down. It's $150 refundable order. Well, lots of people just, you know, having one too many are going to put a deposit down yeah, on this thing. Yeah, exactly. I know a few people that did. I saw lots of people on their Didn't Instagram stories. did do that? I told him not to, but he did. He did, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I don't even know where we're going to park this thing, but uh, if, if it were to come. Thankfully, we have until 2021, 2022 at the latest for this truck to come off the production line. Um, but what I thought was just so crazy about the whole thing was just watching the fandom around Elon it's crazy, Musk. crazy, right? Yeah. And that's the whole thing. It's such a, I don't want to, a cult is too strong of a
1: word. But it resembles that in how people will believe anything and everything, and they're just enthusiastic about everything he does.
0: I definitely agree with you. I would Cult is not the way I'd like to describe it, but But it does have the markings of one. Um, And yes, people love everything that Elon says. They hang off every single word. They believe that he's going to change the world. Any sort of issues that he has, they're like, don't worry, it'll all get figured out. Like he can do no wrong in some people's minds.
1: I know, even though we know that Tesla financially is struggling versus yes. what they were doing like a couple of years ago. And yet, the cars, there's no
0: shortage in demand for the cars. No, it's still a long wait list um, here in BC. I know someone that is having to wait until, for a Model 3, they're waiting until the new year to get one. You're they kidding. put the order in just a, just a couple of days ago. You think this thing is going to get pulled off? A cyber truck? <sighs> you think we're going to see that vehicle on our roads? Right now, I can't imagine seeing that thing rumbling down the road.
5: Like, I feel like it was
0: like, some sort of weird apocalypse is coming. Like, it'd be like the military is moving in or, like, the end is near. Something like that. Trish wrote me and she said it looks like the vehicle
1: from the movie Logan's Run. Do you know Logan's Run? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she said that's what it looks like. Look it up. You'll know what Trish is talking about. Claire, thank you. Now let's talk about our transit strike situation. Today is one of the days where you are seeing an overtime ban by bus drivers and by CBUS maintenance workers. So there will be an impact out there. We haven't heard about a whole lot of cancellations just yet. Uh, but of course, there could be some delays. About 10% of bus service is expected to be impacted by that. That's just today and that's the end of their kind of current uh, list of job action. But we also know that next week is the next level of job action. And that means Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week, there is no bus service at all and no bus. And that is a full work stoppage by drivers and maintenance workers on those three days. They said they will resume and they'll get back to work on the Saturday but you know what for the 350,000 people or so who take the bus and sea bus every day that's cold comfort for those 3 days next week when there is no way for them to use bus service. Now, that's obviously troublesome for many people, such as students. And we've talked a lot about students the last couple of days because they're going to have to find some way to get to school. They're getting to the end of terms here. This is a critical time. They can't just miss classes. How are they going to do that? Okay, well, the other group that there's a lot of concern for are people who rely on home caretakers. Uh, Like a man named Vincent Bull, he's a Vancouver man. He uses a wheelchair and he spends hours every day with his caretakers at home. They do everything. They help him bathe, they prepare meals, they even help him get in and out of bed with a ceiling transfer. And this is a huge concern for him that for three days next week, some of his care workers who do use transit are going to struggle to get to him to help him. We just managed to catch up to Vincent for a few moments before we came on air, and he told me that he has people helping him all day long.
6: Uh, Morning, afternoon, and... uh... To get me up in the afternoon and to uh, transfer me to uh, to bed for the night.
1: And your care workers, do they come to you by transit? Is that how they come to help you?
6: Yeah, some of them come by transit. Uh, for the, my workers that don't have
1: cars, it's <laughs> stressing me out. It must be, yeah. yeah how, how worried are you about this?
6: I'm seriously worried. Because I'm concerned for myself and I'm concerned for the workers because they're, they're stressing out. I'm stressed out for physical reasons. They're stressed out on how they're going to provide uh, adequate care.
1: Have you talked to your caretakers? Are you going to try to come up with a different plan? What are they going to do?
6: Honestly, I haven't got the slightest idea.
1: Oh, poor Vincent, a Vancouver man who relies on his caretakers every day, and some of them them some of them rely on transit, and so he's stuck. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And he said his worry level on a scale of 1 to 10 is at 11 right now. Uh, so to find out more about other cases like Vincent, joining us now is Maria Muller, who's Director of Home Care at the Greater Vancouver Community Service Society. Maria, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Are you hearing stories like Vincent's?
5: Yes, um, yes, and and we are, and this is why we are working really hard, uh, and we're working closely with Vancouver Coastal Health to come up with an emergency response plan. And we're trying to identify uh, who are the workers that are driving and uh, uh, rearranging some schedules so to make sure that our clients like Vincent Ball will receive the care that they need, and that they're still going to be able to get up in the morning, have their meals, medication, and uh, be safe at home.
1: How many workers do you think do rely on transit to get to the places where they work?
5: Right now, according to our uh, stat statistic, uh, seven hundred employees out of seven hundred fifty percent are taking buses.
1: Okay, so that's even just three hundred and fifty people who will be deeply yes. impacted by that.
5: Yes, and uh, so we're trying to identify who are the workers that live in Vancouver, and we're going to try to make it easier for them as well not to uh, to be able to work around where they live and to be able to get to our clients around their area. And so, you know, like Vincent Boy, if he's got any worker around his area that lives around the area, we'll probably send um, that person to him so that he doesn't lose a care, um, and our workers be able to also work as well. Now, there will be some delays for sure uh, for the other clients because of this, and the ones are worker that live outside Vancouver will definitely have a challenge on this area
1: right how big of a challenge though has this been for you in getting all of this
5: worked out? Well this is really taking us a lot of work and um, and work with Vancouver Coastal Health their leadership and our leadership our supervisors rearranging things and schedules um, so that is really taking um, time out of our daily daily operation and so it is impacting us um, in terms of that
1: Now, Maria, do you think this is happening all over metro Vancouver i mean or or is it just Vancouver is the big concern uh,
5: We service the, the the city of Vancouver um, so this is pretty much for our company, GVCSS. We service most of our clients in Vancouver, right. and, um, and which probably the biggest impact of this bus strike, right?
1: Yeah, I would imagine. But I guess, are you hearing from other organizations as well? Is this something that a lot of organizations are dealing with right now?
5: Yes, um, and uh, some of them are small organization, and uh, Vancouver Coastal Health as well has taken over um, another company. And uh, so we are going to be in the same boat, and um, I can imagine only that, you know, all the other companies are in the same situation like us. Are clients feeling the stress? The clients are curious about how they're going to probably get their care. And uh, so we'd like to reassure everyone that uh, we are going to do our best to limit the impacts and try to re- rearrange things according to emergency response plan that uh, the special needs will still be attended to.
1: So you have an emergency response plan. Is that something that you already had that you are going to be instituting?
5: Yes. Um, and that is usually something that we put in place um, in situations like this um, or uh, severe weather, if we have any uh, snowstorms, things like that.
1: Okay, so when is that going to get into place? You'll have everything ready then for next Wednesday?
5: We are still working on a lot of them and we should be ready before Wednesday.
1: Before Wednesday. Okay, Did, boy, yes. this, must be, this must take up a lot of time when normally you would be doing other important work.
5: It can take some other time from
1: us, from all of us, yes. All right, Maria, thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Maria Mullen, Director of Home Care at the Greater Vancouver Community Service Society. There is a remarkable new report out today, and it's been released by the Archdiocese of Vancouver of the Catholic Church. And they essentially had put together a review committee to look at and talk about clerical sexual abuse. Now, this, of course, has been a worldwide issue that has really come to light in the last 10 or 15 years. And, you know, the Catholic Church faced a lot of criticism for how they dealt with or did not essentially deal with these issues, which is what makes this report so interesting. It's 12 pages long, and essentially it is a month-long survey that they did, of sexual abuse cases that took place within the Archdiocese of Vancouver since 1950. And they say it's the first report of its kind released by any diocese in Canada. So that is a big step forward. Uh, This is something that they say will result in the Um, It's got recommendations, so 31 recommendations, but it's got responses and the naming of Vancouver priests who have been criminally convicted or named in settled lawsuits or have been the subject of other public cases. That alone is something very significant. So we wanted to talk about the recommendations and what the Archdiocese does now. So joining us is Melissa Godby, who's the Archdiocese of Vancouver's spokesperson on this. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Can you tell us a little bit about the process and what led to this?
7: Well, this came after the huge uh, revelation in um, the United States with the grand jury report in Philadelphia that um, showed so many uh, cases of clergy sexual abuse in those jurisdictions. And so realizing that clergy abuse can happen anywhere, um, Archbishop Miller put together this committee to investigate any cases that we had
1: here in Vancouver. And how did you select people for the committee?
7: Um, I'm not exactly sure of how he went about selecting them, but I know that he did choose people from a variety of different backgrounds, Catholic, -Catholic, non-Catholic, a variety of professions, different genders, as well as um, having victims of abuse as well. That was important to him.
1: All right. And so they got together and they discussed issues. Is that how it worked?
7: Yes. They, we had three lawyers review all of the cases in the Archdiocese history, and then those cases were presented to the members of the committee who went through each of them to look for missteps um, that the Archdiocese had taken and look for ways to strengthen um, this, the protocols and procedures going forward.
1: Okay, and what were some of the recommendations that were made there? Let's talk about some of the big ones.
7: Some of the big ones had to do with the intake office, um, making it um, easier for people to come forward so they feel more supported and they feel safe in reporting, so having lay people available um, so they don't have to report directly to clergy, which is huge. Um, also, establishing an independent review board, so bringing in two lawyers that are non-Catholic um, who will be, that will be set up soon um, to review all the cases so that... Um, so that we're doing a fair job, but so that also it's seen that we're doing a fair job, that we are not um, influencing any of the investigations in any way. So those are two major steps this archdiocese is implementing.
1: I noticed that even off of your website, right there on the main page, it says report abuse here. So you've made that that accessible for people to do that.
7: Absolutely. There, We know that there have to be more victims out there that are suffering in silence because they haven't felt safe to come forward in the past. Um, and the Archbishop really wants to make it easier for these victims to come forward so that their healing can begin. So yeah, it's right on the front of our website, rcav.org reporting. Um, it's accessible for anybody.
1: All right, and what about making it an open process as well? I think one of the big criticisms of the Catholic Church in the past was how much secrecy was involved in all this.
7: Right. Yes, that that's hard. It makes it hard to trust the church, for sure. Um, we're very committed to transparency here. We really want to be open about the process, which is why it's clearly documented um, in the report. Um, we really want people to know what happens, uh, what will happen to them, to their names, um, that support is available for them, and that Every claim will be investigated, and anything to do with minors will be immediately reported to authorities as well.
1: Okay, and if you find somebody who is credibly accused, what happens to them at that point?
7: Um, they're removed from, from ministry immediately, and then their case is reported to the authorities, and our, it is investigated internally as well.
1: Is that information publicly available then as to like why was that you know, priest or official suddenly moved off somewhere else?
7: Well, see, that's where it gets tricky, because privacy laws come into play. So we are bound by the law. We are not allowed to release names um, until they have been charged or named on public record.
1: So you wouldn't be, if, if somebody is, goes to regular church and then their regular priest is suddenly gone for a reason that, you know, they had abuse investigated, are you saying you wouldn't be able to tell parishioners that's what happened?
7: Um, I believe the Archdiocese is going to send um, people into those parishes in particular to talk um, with the, among the parishioners, but it won't be made public.
1: It won't be made public. Okay, so is that different than what happens in, in the United States? Um, I'm not totally familiar with the
7: uh, privacy laws in the United States, but I know they're more restrictive here.
1: Okay, and is this coming into effect already, or are these practices that have already started, I guess, at the Archdiocese here?
7: Well, we've had a very strong sexual abuse policy in place here for more than 25 years. Um, over time, that has been strengthened and has come to show a greater respect for the victims. Um, but our acceptance of these 31 recommendations from the committee, which included survivors, um, really helps to take it to the next level. So some of these, um, the recommendations um, are are tweaks and uh, updates to the current policies, but some of them are are new.
1: Right, yeah. So you said it's Archdiocese of Vancouver. How does that fit in into the broader picture of, you know, other Catholics in Canada?
7: Well, I can't really speak to the other churches in Canada, but I can say that... um, Archbishop Miller has been named um, the chair on um, a committee of sexual abuse for the Canadian Conference of Bishops. So we, He will be addressing issues like this uh, with the committee.
1: Right. Okay. So what are the next steps now with this, Melissa?
7: Well, as we said, there, there are many steps to come. This is just the very beginning. There's a lot of work to do. We have to get a, a few of these um, recommendations implemented, um, finding the personnel, establishing the, uh, the offices, but the big one is those two independent lawyers that are non-Catholic, they will be coming on in early 2020 to start um, looking through all the historical cases of uh, abuse and also investigating any new ones. So that is, that's a big next step.
1: Right. So you do expect to hear from more people?
7: Um Yes, I, I hope we I hope we don't. I hope there aren't any more victims out there, but um, I think that's a little naive to say. So we hope that anybody who did experience abuse does feel safe and supported enough to come forward,
1: yes. All right, Melissa, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. That's Melissa Godby, the Archdiocese of Vancouver spokesperson. I'm going to let you in on a little secret out there. I have a huge pet peeve here at work, in the workplace. It's strictly a work thing that I'm talking about right now. It has to do with the people who reply all in emails. It drives me insane. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Where all of a sudden you're getting all of these reply alls from people who, and you don't need to know. You don't need to know if they're going to go to this event. You don't need to know that they can't make it for this thing. You don't need to know what their two bits are on anything, but they are clogging up your work inbox by replying all, all because they can't see that right next to them, they could just hit reply. They don't need to hit the reply all. They can just hit the reply button and it would be a totally different situation. I actually have been known to uh, give the occasional person a hard time at, here at work if they hit reply all. When I ask them, what did you do that for? Do we need to see that? No, we didn't need to see that. Uh, I'm trying to stop doing that. It doesn't happen as often anymore, but it is my pet peeve. It is why this story that I'm about to tell you about now made me laugh so hard when I came across it today. I read this in the Washington Post this morning. It's a TV reporter in Kansas City. And this happened to him yesterday. And all I can imagine is he must have been mortified when he realized what happened. So he had just had dental surgery. And he'd been he was woozy, essentially. And he thought that he was going to make it into work the next day when he'd originally had the surgery. But at some point, he realized when he got home that nah, he just was not going to be able to make it into work the next day. So he emailed his boss to say, "I'm not going. I'm I'm really sick. I'm not going to be able to make it into work the next day tomorrow." The problem is, when Nick Vassos did this, he accidentally sent it to every single employee who works at this company. The company has nearly two hundred TV stations in the United States. Every single person who works for that company got Nick Vassos' email saying, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it into work tomorrow. Uh, And that just prompted, apparently, a lot of hilarity at the company. Like, if I got that email to you from somebody who worked in, you know, Saskatchewan or, you know, Montreal or whatever, who worked for our company... I would also wonder, what the heck is this? What happened here? So essentially what happened, though, is that the employees responded by having a whole bunch of fun. They also launched a hashtag, hashtag prayers for Nick, because they wanted to make sure that he was feeling okay. They sent him chicken soup. They sent him flowers. They sent him tweets. They sent him thousands of emails, apparently, in response to this, uh, because they wanted to make sure that he was okay. They had a great time with it. And it got to the point where his boss actually had to send out a message to everybody saying, I am one of Nick Vasos's managers, grateful to report. He and I have communicated and he is going to pull through. You guys are a scream, because I guess the employees were having such a good time with this. So he I thought, how do you do this? How do you accidentally email every single employee in the entire company? And I guess he tried to explain it, but what happened was that he was still a bit woozy. he it it did the autofill thing, and he let it. And he should not have done that, essentially, because that's why it went to, Everybody. He said it was a mistake. He is having a good time with it. He also tweeted an apology to fans of Nicolas Cage and Nick Jonas and other famous Nicks who apparently got worried when they saw the hashtag prayers for Nick trending nationwide. And they got worried for, you know, any celebrity named Nick. And uh, the funny thing is that lots of employees are now going to um, visit him and get a tour of the TV station from the other stations that they have there because they feel like they've gotten to know him. But man, did it ever get us talking here about people who make big mistakes over company email. Have you ever gotten one of those? When you go, what, this, this can't have been meant for me. And then like 30 seconds later, you get that message that says the sender tried to return this email, like tried to retract that email. I've had that happen too. So we thought, hey, we should open up the phone lines here because I wonder, have you ever been the person that did this? Have you ever sent an email or a message or something that you wish you hadn't? We've got Christine in New Westminster. Hi, Christine. Hi. Oh, you've got a story Um, for us. Let's hear it.
8: Yeah. Well, fortunately, this wasn't me who did this, but um, I was working for a national law firm and in the Vancouver office, it was, um, it was extremely hush-hush that a senior female manager was having an affair with a senior partner. Mm. And, yeah, and I guess, and this has been going on for some time. He was married, she was <gasps> single. And I guess there was some, uh, you know, ups Are and Are you downs. telling me and, that
1: they were using work email to communicate,
8: Christine? Yes, and so she had emailed him something, I guess, you know, asking him how he was or something, and he wrote her this long email about how he was stressed and stuff that was going on in his marriage and all this kind of stuff, oh. and she he appreciated her support, and da-da-da. Unfortunately, instead of hitting reply, he hit reply all, and... So the secret affair was no longer secret. You
1: mean every and person in the impl- like the firm
8: got ev- this email?
1: Ev-
8: everybody. And the oh. way we found out in the Vancouver office that this happened—if you weren't at your desk—was we had an interior staircase, and all of a sudden you heard her pound because her her oh. office was on the floor <laughs> below his. She just came. Her face is beet red, and she just came flying up the staircase into his office slam the door and you can hear just as yelling and screaming oh. and, and of course everybody is just running around, did you see? Did you see? Did you see? Did you see? Oh, that's terrible! Did you know? Did you know? Oh yeah, it was no longer a
1: secret. No kidding, that is mortifying. Uh, Christine, thank oh. you very much for that story. You're welcome. It was highly enjoyable. More like, I'm sure time has passed. We don't know who those people are, but uh, that was very enjoyable. Goes with my uh, my motto: never fish off the company pier. Right? It always results in some. Well, almost always results in some kind of complication. Now. Christine was telling us a great story. If this has happened to you, feel free to call. We don't have to use your real name. You can give us another name. That's cool. But we'd love to hear your story. Now we have another caller. We have Steve. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on, Simi. Mine isn't quite as salacious as that. I'm sure it's still good. Let's hear it. Well, I had the misfortune
3: of to have to dismiss an employee. And it was a problem within our group. And so, you know, it was a popular decision. Let's just put it that way. And of course, I had an email that included everybody in that group. So after I after it happened and she got lettered and she was given notice, I sent out an email assuring the rest of the group that everything was gonna be fine. We're still a great team, you know, a Kumbaya moment. And right. of course I had I had not removed her from oh. the group. So
1: so she got the email telling everybody, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine now. she's gone.
3: Yeah, the cancer's been removed. (laughs) I didn't say it like that, but if you read between the lines, you know, that's kind of the way it was. So anyway, so there was a pile of drama, and of course, then now you have, you know, something has to happen now. Like, I can't have that. That's just, I can't have that for two weeks. So it's like, hey, here's a box. Pack up your desk. We'll pay you for, you know, and guess what? You got the next two weeks
1: off. Oh yeah, and you so, can't have that. How did like, what was that le- communication with her to tell her that must have been so awkward? Yeah, it was. Well, I had
3: to get her, I Had to get her calmed down first, and then, Aww. and then it was yeah. Uh, everybody's got to get out of the department while we do this next little nasty bit of work. And um, but it has unfortunately, not, you know, you you take the hit for that. You, you, you learn from it, hopefully, and um, you know. It, but you know the other thing is if there's you know the email creates groups for you right
1: yes that's if, true
3: if you're, if you're not careful and if you're not looking really hard at exactly who that email is going to it can include somebody else in the group that you might not want it to go to
1: that is excellent advice Steve thank you very much for that no, you're welcome Boy, have a nice Friday. No, you have a great Friday, too. Those are two excellent examples of work emails gone wrong. Steve's right. You Your email does create groups, and you do sometimes send an email, and you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a group. The people that I want, just send it to them. I get emails like that all the time where I'm like, why, why am I in this group? Why am I getting sent this email? I don't need to know this information. And I hate that kind of stuff, right? It just clogs up your inbox. But that's just minor nuisance stuff. That's not this big deal stuff that we were hearing about today. And it all started because of this story in the States, a TV reporter who told his boss he wasn't coming into work tomorrow, but he accidentally emailed it to every single employee at the 200 TV stations that the company owned. Uh, I want to go to Ingrid now, who has called us from Cloverdale. Hi, Ingrid. Hey. How are you today?
4: Oh, awesome. It's such a beautiful day. out Driving around, it's so sunny and nice. I love it. Okay, do you have a story for us? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, not probably as good as the other stories, but I was uh, working in an office, a shipping company, and we're, all, we're talking almost 30 years ago, so modern technology, not at its finest. And I was sending a message to the, my friend who sat in front of me to tell her that, asking her if she wanted to go for lunch, And I had said something along those lines. And I said, find the kid with the big round head behind you. And I was referring to Charlie Brown because that's what he always called himself. And it was just a funny thing. And when I hit send, all the computers in the office all made the the sound that they had received this message. And I was like, oh, no. And then uh, we were all laughing And I was thinking, shoot, I'm going to be in trouble. And then I started getting replies from Chicago, New York. What? Every every terminal in the company across North America got the message.
1: And they're all wondering who's
4: the kid with the big round head? Exactly. That's exactly what they said. They said, a couple of the offices said, we all turned to look who the kid with the big (laughs) round head behind us. And then then I got called into the, the manager's office and he was a nice guy but he came across real tough and I was only in my early twenties. I was right. probably like twenty twenty two or twenty three and uh I thought, Great, this this is it. I'm, done, I'm gonna yeah. get fired <laughs> And he thought it was funny, so he just said, "Don't
1: do that again. Like, pay attention to what you're doing." But it was funny. I'll bet you can. I'll bet it. you paid very close attention for the rest of your career, Ingrid, about uh, who you sent yeah, emails to.
4: Yeah, I, I sure did. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Yeah, it was called a break message back uh, in the day. It's too
1: funny. Oh, Ingrid, yeah. thanks so much for the story. I love it. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good afternoon. You too. I got an email as well from someone who did not want me to use their name. Fair enough. I know some of these might be embarrassing. You might not want me to. Cool. Thank you for letting me know that. This person says that they were working at a local police department slash detachment. I'm going to keep it as anonymous as possible. And they said, of course, we are not to use our computers for sending jokes or YouTube things. It's a police department. You can imagine that they would be fairly strict about that. Well, this person said, I I don't know how I did it, but I sent that Christopher Walken dance YouTube video plus another dance to the chief inspector. (laughs) Uh, The chief inspector was not impressed. This person ended up being suspended for a day. And they're now saying, so to everyone, be careful. You're right. However, in hindsight, funny. Funny. What do you think about, you know, the chief inspector in their office receiving the Christopher Walken dance YouTube video, but not funny that you were suspended for a day? Have you ever sent a message that you wish that you had not? Have you ever had one of those problems or was a situation like that happen at your work? Happens everywhere, right, at some point. uh, You can call us on our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. And you can email me, simi at cknw.com. We want to follow up on a story that we were talking about earlier today and that you've been hearing about in the news. It has to do with this report that came out from the Vancouver Archdiocese. And the Archbishop, Michael Miller, has released 31 recommendations, and they come from a local committee. That committee took the time to review church records, records of abuse by priests in the Vancouver Archdiocese. And so among the recommendations in this report is that they set up an intake office to handle complaints and that that office would be staffed by people specifically trained to deal with the complexities of clergy sexual abuse. It also suggested the implementation of a review board to determine if an allegation is credible. Now, one of the other recommendations is one that we are going to talk more about extensively right now. It involves naming priests who are, quote, credibly accused of assault, but not a proven in a court of law. That was one of the recommendations that the Archdiocese actually pushed back on, and they cited Canadian privacy laws for that. They said, due to Canadian legislation on privacy, they said, we are more restricted than American dioceses, which have been able to publish the names of what has been called credibly accused priests. So, earlier we spoke with Melissa Godbu, who's the spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Vancouver, and we wanted to know, like, what happens to priests then who receive these credible accusations?
8: Um,
7: they're removed from from ministry immediately, and then their case is reported to the authorities, and our it is investigated internally as well.
1: Is that information publicly available then as to, like, why was that, you know, priest or official suddenly moved off somewhere else? Well, see, that's where it gets tricky because privacy laws come into play.
7: So we are bound by the law. We are not allowed to release names. Um, until they have been charged or named on public record.
1: Okay, so we had some questions about that, because that would seem counterproductive, given all the other forward-thinking elements in this report by the Catholic Church, that you would think that if you have some credible accusations against a priest, you remove the priest from one you know, particular parish, can that priest then go to work at another parish, and is there any obligation to tell those people about why this new priest has suddenly arrived so we had questions about that they cited canadian law and said that canadian legislation on privacy does not allow them to do that so we thought well let's talk to somebody about that law so joining us now is robert tallack who's a partner at beckett personal injury lawyers in london ontario he actually leads he's a victim's advocate leads the sexual abuse department there robert thank you for joining us
9: Thanks for covering the issue.
1: Yeah, what kind of work do you do? What do you specialize in?
9: So I represent victims of sexual abuse uh, across Canada, um, all types of sexual abuse, but I just find that I tend to represent more and more uh, victims of Catholic priests because it's very prevalent out there.
1: So when you heard this about this report today, what did you think?
9: Well, i got to say my visceral reaction was there's a bit of a cop-out on not being able to fully list the names. I mean, I've been involved in legal battles for years where the Catholic Church says, look, priests aren't employees and we're not an employer. We're different than that. But magically, when it's time to name names, they're suddenly an employer, and they're trying to adhere to a very orthodox read of the privacy legislation uh, in British Columbia and Canada.
1: So do you think, knowing the privacy legislation then, does that hold up to you that, oh, it's because of the legislation they can't say anything?
9: No, I think there's, there's lots of ways they could do this. I mean, let's look to other professions that are self-regulated that report publicly all the time when there's employee misconduct, um, College of Physicians... Uh, the teachers, any of these regulated professions that work for vulnerable people you can go online and you can look up a database and find out when someone's been in trouble in their workplace on this particular issue we're not talking about some uh, employee malfeasance that they didn't do their job right, we're talking about criminal allegations of criminal activity and you know if over the years they had done the right thing and just said don't talk to us, go talk to the police and we had more secular investigation, we wouldn't be in this dilemma right now that only they know.
1: So you believe that they could put this information out there publicly if they believed there was abuse that happened, even if it wasn't anything to do with a criminal case?
9: Well, no, it's criminal conduct. I mean, the point is, this is criminal conduct. So you're asking me if there's no conviction, and there's no... Uh, lawsuit i think they can do an internal process to determine if it meets uh, a standard of truth and they can put it out there i mean look it takes so long to name these guys because the abuse is so destructive to the people we're going to see a lot of names if this list eventually comes out of deceased priests so you know there's no privacy right in the dead okay and if the concern is, hey, maybe the victims don't want us to tell their story, I think a lot of victims would want the name of their perpetrator out there. And if that's an issue, if, if, if the controller of the information is the victim, then you just get their consent to put out the name of their perpetrator. So, look, if you don't want to give the names, you hire lawyers that give you excuses why not to. If you want to put out the names, you find a legal way to do it.
1: Robert, has anything improved in this situation since you have been working with victims?
9: Well, I mean, look, I don't want to be all doomsayer. I mean, I'm happy with what I read in this, and but the unfortunate thing is I've seen a lot of this language before. You know, the Church put out a report in 1992. People may not know about it. It's called From Pain to Hope. Very little put into practice. They updated it in 2005. Again, I, to this day, I deal with diocese that uh, don't follow it. But the good news is, I mean, gag orders are a thing of the past. That's those confidentiality agreements, or as, uh, as we would hear south of the border, the uh, non-disclosure agreements, NDAs. Uh, we see now a lot of Catholic institutions uh, providing some limited funding and or support for counseling to victims. So, you know, we've had some slow movement on the file. But, you know, the piece that's really missing is the why, why is this such a problem in the Catholic Church? This report doesn't look at it. None of the church reports look at it.
1: It's also been, it's also being done still on a relatively small level. I mean, this is just the Archdiocese of Vancouver, right?
9: Yeah, so I mean, kudos to Archbishop Miller for taking the lead on this. But in a certain sense, that's an indictment of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is our national sort of group of of the church in Canada. They should have done something like this a long time ago. And it's a bit embarrassing, I think, for their leadership, for just one lone member of theirs out on the West Coast to put this type of package together when it really should have been a national effort. So good work for Archbishop Miller if this is fully implemented it's a conditional kudos and you know the, the the big organization the conference in canada really needs to catch up i mean we're not asking for something novel like i said teachers doctors this this information's out there you can check and see if your kids teachers ever been disciplined you can check and see if a doctors a problem we can't do that with priests yet
1: what do you think it is that is taking so long because it's not like this hasn't been talked about and exposed and discussed why still this hold up this reluctance to really expose it all
9: well, I think because, you know, if we got it all out there, the volume would knock people off their chairs. I mean, this is a big problem in the Catholic Church. I mean, their own numbers from south of the border say 4 to 6% of all priests. If you look at those numbers and remove the contemporary reporting, in other words, the fact that nobody's come forward in the last 10 or 20 years, that's because those victims are still suffering. But if you rejig those numbers to be realistic, it's somewhere between 10 and 15%. So, You know, there's no other profession that has this volume of difficulty on this sexual issue. So I understand, you know, the hesitancy to really get it out there, because I think it's going to really be an eye-opener for the public and, of course, Catholics in general.
1: Well, Robert, thank you very much for your time on this today.
9: Thanks. And I hope, you know, long-term there's some movement to open the priesthood to all all sex, gender, uh, you know, orientation, marital status. Let's just make it like any other occupation. I think a lot of this problem is going to evaporate.
1: We'll see. Robert, thank you.
9: Take care. That's Bye.
1: Robert Talak, who's a partner at Beckett Personal Injury Lawyers in London, Ontario. He leads their sexual abuse department. He's a victim's advocate. He said he has worked on, well, it sounds like almost way too many uh, claims having to do with abuse within the Catholic Church, being abused by Catholic priests, and uh, it does remind me of that movie Spotlight, you know, every time uh, that movie so incredibly powerful on this subject, that whole idea of the secrecy and exposing it and just learning more about it. So the Archdiocese of Vancouver is in the news today because they are the ones who put out this report. It was Archbishop Michael Miller who released 31 recommendations of a local committee that he put together that reviewed church records of abuse by priests just in the Vancouver Archdiocese. All sorts of recommendations. But the one that, you know, has raised a few questions is the fact that they're pushing back on naming priests who have been credibly accused. So they believe that this priest has, you know, committed some kind of misconduct or abuse. It has not resulted either yet or, you know, may not result in a criminal conviction, but they're not going to name those priests. They may shuffle them off to something else or send them away, but they're not going to name them because they claimed Canadian legislation on privacy prevented them from doing so. We just heard from lawyer Robert Talak who says that's not the case. They could find ways to do this. Other organizations do. Catholic Church could do so as well.